hello, hello, everyone, and welcome back to Know It All Podcast. I am your host, Riley Sue, and I am so excited to be joining you for another episode. Last week, we finished off our episodes for Women's History Month here in the United States with a long discussion about the women of the American West, and I absolutely loved writing, recording, editing, and talking with y'all about that episode. She may have taken my top spot for favorite that we've done so far, but this week, though, we're going to be slowing down the pace a little bit, taking things broad, global even, to discuss spring holidays and traditions around the world. Of course, we already are into the spring season here in the United States, and globally, holidays like Ramadan Mubarak are in their midst. Passover begins today, April 5th, and Easter Sunday is this weekend. With all of these cultures, countries, and religions celebrating spring, there's got to be something special going on here, right? So gather up your cheese wheels, chocolate bunnies, brightly colored powders, a basket full of flowers, and your vacuum. It's springtime, baby. All right, so even though I am more than sure you know some of these things, we've got to make sure that we are all on the same page. So, class, what is spring? Oh, yes, there in the back. Uh huh. <laughs> All right. Okay, yeah. Spring is the season of the year between winter and summer where temperatures gradually rise. The spring transition between seasons, however, only occurs in locations that are within the middle and high latitudes. This is because the closer you are to the equator, temperatures vary little throughout the year. In English, the word spring comes from the Old English springen, which means to leap, burst forth, fly up, spread, grow which has its roots in early Proto-Indo-European languages as springa, a nasalized form of the word meant to move, hasten, and spring. This movement, rising, spreading, and growth is seen all over the world and is also celebrated. And I mean, I have to say, I'm in on the spring-loving train this year. The transition from gloomy and cold winter to bright and sunny new life in spring is really getting to be something that I love. Maybe not my sinuses and my allergies, you know, they're not really appreciating it, but... I love it. <laughs> Animals are waking up from hibernation and conducting their nesting or mating activities. Birds are migrating to be closer to warmer locations. Flowers are blooming, and it's getting time to plant your seeds for harvest later in the year. I mean, and all of that's happening right now. And the animal kingdom isn't alone. Throughout many different types of rites, festivals, and traditions, almost all of which revolve around food or flowers, we as humans are hype for the springtime. So let's dig into a broad coverage of spring holidays and traditions from around the world. I tried my best to make this list as wide covering as possible, but uh, the world is huge and I am only one person doing one episode on my one little podcast. I did my best to highlight some traditions and celebrations on each continent and specifically of some countries that I know we have listeners in. So have an ear out for your country. I also decided that I wouldn't be including archaeological sites or geographic features that interact with the sun during the spring or fall equinox because, well, one, it's often debated if those sites were even intended to interact with the sun in that way or if it's just a coincidence, and two, this is my podcast and I can do it the way I want to. You'll love me for it. So, all right, enough with the caveats and limitations. Let's just do the damn thing. All right, so let's all climb into the know-it-all tour bus here and set our sights on the giant behemoth that is the continent of Asia, which is why we're going to start with it. It contains all of the themes I talked about earlier, and it's going to help us establish a solid base knowledge to compare the other traditions that we discuss. I want you to be able to follow these comparisons and these holidays as if you've never heard of any of them and they're totally brand new to you, so we can wipe the slate and take away your biases to see the bigger picture. Okay, Asia. 
Leading us off in Asia is going to be Israel, where the leading spring tradition and holiday is without a doubt the celebration of Passover. Passover is a Jewish holiday commemorating the Hebrews' liberation from slavery in Egypt and the subsequent passing over or sparing of the firstborn of the Israelites. The story of Passover comes from the second book of the Torah, Shefer Shemot, or the Book of Names. This is also the book of Exodus within the Bible. The story of Passover discusses the ancient Hebrews' enslavement in Egypt and their ultimate freedom, which calls to larger themes in Jewish history like foreign oppression and longing for freedom, the sense that Jewish people are a protected and resilient group who can and will survive any adversity, and the contrast between living inside and outside of Israel, themes that have been ever-present in the lives of Jewish people everywhere and are still a large part of the Passover traditions today. So what is the Passover story? Well, it all begins with the Israelites living in Egypt during the 3rd century BCE. And the pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, starts to think that there are too many Jewish people in Egypt and that their population will grow so high it will eventually outnumber the Egyptians. Pharaoh doesn't like this idea, so he begins forcing the Jews into slavery and decrees that every son born to a Hebrew home must be drowned in the Nile River. One baby, Moses, is saved from the river and adopted by the pharaoh's daughter. Moses grows up and is told by God to command Pharaoh to let the Jewish people go. And, well, Pharaoh says no which really pissed God off, so he sends ten plagues to Egypt so that Pharaoh knows that he means business. In the tenth and final plague, God passes through Egypt and strikes down the firstborn of every household, with one exception. The Israelites got a special little cheat code from the man upstairs to sacrifice a lamb and use the blood to mark their doors, a symbol to God for that house to be passed over. The Pharaoh's son was killed during this final plague, and as a result, Pharaoh let the Jewish people go free, and then changed his mind and chased them to the edge of the Red Sea. Not a big deal for the Israelites and God, though. Moses parts the sea with the help of the big man, and the Jewish people make it out alive. What a story. What a triumph. So in the celebration of Passover, people give thanks for being passed over and being protected from the plagues, and they do this in a variety of ways. The date of Passover follows the Hebrew calendar and begins on the 15th day in the month of Nisan, which is also the first month of the Hebrew year. The Hebrew calendar is adjusted to align with the solar calendar in a way that the 15th of Nisan always coincides with a Sunday, Tuesday, Thursday, or Saturday. Yes, today is a Wednesday and I said that Passover starts today. How? Well, Hebrew days start and end at sunset, so this holiday and any others begin at sunset on the day before. Passover goes from the 15th to the 21st, and on these seven or eight days, all leavened bread or other mixture is prohibited, meaning only leavened bread, calling matzo, can be eaten. The matzo symbolizes both the suffering of the Hebrews while in bondage and the haste with which they left Egypt to escape the grips of the Pharaoh. They were in such a hurry they couldn't wait for anything to rise. But don't think that because the bread can't rise that this is some kind of humdrum or meh holiday. Passover is celebrated with a lot of excitement and ceremony, particularly on the first night or two, where a special family meal called the Seder is held, but the preparation and planning begins far in advance. In many Orthodox and traditional homes, cleaning everything and removing any remnants of leavened material is imperative. Everything is cleaned. Cabinets, countertops, bedrooms, dresser drawers, books that may have been eaten over top of, clothes, you name it. It's thoroughly cleaned and everything is prepared. Stainless steel sinks need to be cleaned over a 24-hour period, and artificial surfaces like formica should be covered. Specific pots of pans, silverware, and dinnerware are used for Passover. Whatever one has for the rest of the year, there's likely a special set that's only used for those eight days. Some people choose to isolate leavened items or put them away in special locations within their homes. Others may give them to a non-Jewish person to eat or hold on to throughout Passover. For those celebrating within Israel, the Seder celebration is one night. But if you're part of the Jewish diaspora and living outside of Israel, you could have two Seders on the first two nights of Passover. 
Seder is a combination of both celebration and ritual, and involves a retelling of the story of liberation as well as songs, eating symbolic foods, drinking of wine, a focus on children, and reclining in celebration of freedom, which I just think is so badass of the Jews. Like, yeah, I'm kicking it back in the recliner, celebrating the fact that my people are and continue to be God's favorite. How are your silly little eggs? Heading out of Israel and around 5,500 miles southwest, we land in Thailand to celebrate Sankran. Until 1888, Thailand and Thai people celebrated the beginning of the new year with the movement of the sun from Pisces to Aries in the zodiac. As globalization and industrialization increased as did the need for aligned dates, the new year was then moved to April 1st to be a set date. Finally, in 1940, the new year was shifted to January 1st, and the traditional Sankran was transformed into a national holiday. So presently, Sankran is celebrated on April 13th every year, with two days after recognized as part of the holiday period. But like, what is it? The word Sankran comes from Sanskrit and literally means to move. Like I mentioned, the movement that's being celebrated is the movement of the sun from Aries to Pisces and it aligns with other New Year celebrations and other calendars of Southeast and South Asia that use Buddhist or Hindu calendars, which is fitting because the origin story for Sankran is Buddhist. The story goes that in the olden days there was a wealthy man who had a neighbor and the neighbor was a drunk. The drunk man had two sons and he belittled the rich man for being childless. The rich man was humiliated by this treatment and begged the sun and moon gods to grant him a son. The rich man's attempts ultimately failed, but he offered to cook rice to the tree god who lived in the banyan tree. The tree god asked Indra, the lightning god that we know from our episode 3, to grant the man's wish, and Indra did, giving the rich man a son that he named Thambal. Thambal was a smart child and learned three Vedas and was able to speak bird language and taught people to avoid sin. Another god, Kapila Brahma, learned of Thambal and wanted to test his wits. Kapila asked, quote, Where is the glory, or Sri, of men located in the morning, during the day, and during the evening? End quote. Loser of the bet gets his head cut off. Simple stuff. Thambal thought for six days, but couldn't come up with a solution to the riddle. He laid under the sugar palm tree and overheard a conversation between two eagles, you know, because he speaks bird, and they were talking about how they were going to eat him when he lost the bet, which I'm sure was a huge bummer. But then one of the eagles asked the other what the answer to the riddle was, and Thambal overheard. He memorized the answer, and the next day he was ready to present it to Kapila. Quote, In the morning, the Sri appears on the face, so people wash their faces in the morning. At noon, the Sri is at the chest, where people spray perfume every noon. In the evening, the Sri goes to the feet, so people wash their feet in the evening. End quote. Kapila was shocked, but he was a man of his word, so he summoned his seven daughters to inform them that he had to cut his head off. But the task was much easier said than done. Because Kapila was a god, he couldn't just simply leave his head just anywhere. If it fell to the earth, it would create an inferno that would engulf the world. If it was thrown into the air, the rains would stop. And if it was thrown into the oceans, they would all dry up. The solution to this issue was to place his severed head on an elevated fan, which looks a lot like an ornate cake plate or serving dish. Kapila's head was placed onto the fan by his eldest daughter and stored in a cave on a mountain. Tradition says that every year when the sun enters Aries, one of Kapila's children, called the Nang Sankran or Lady Sankran, for that year forms a procession with the other angels. The specified lady takes the fawn with her father's head on it and moves through a series of positions with it while on the back of an animal. From dawn to midday, the lady will stand. After midday until sunset, she will sit. Between sunset and midnight, the lady will lay down but leave her eyes open. After midnight, she sleeps. The specific daughter is chosen based on which day of the week Sankran falls on, and each of the seven has a corresponding color, flower, gemstone, food, animal that she does her ritual movements on, and items for her right and left hands. 
For example, this year, Songkran is on a Thursday, which would be Karini Devi, whose color is orange, her flower is a magnolia, her stone is an emerald, her food is nuts and sesame seeds, in her right hand she carries a hook, and in her left she carries a bow, and she rides on top of an elephant. Celebrations of Songkran begin with cleansing and preparations for the large celebrations. On the day of, people wear brightly colored or traditional tie dress and practice merit-making in the morning, or doing good deeds to add to the pleasantness of your karma. In some cities, parades are held and communities crown their own Lady Songkran. A large part of the celebration is water, which can be highlighted in a number of ways. People may pour water on Buddha statues, on young people, or on elderly people as a traditional ritual to represent the purification or washing away of one's unpleasantness or bad luck. The water doesn't stop there, though. Water fights are common, and whole streets or blocks are closed to traffic to be used as arenas. Participants of these water fights are both young and old, and everyone gets in on the fun of the splashing. The capital city of Bangkok even equips posts with water guns and fills buckets full of water. For some really cool photos of the water fights that happened in Bangkok, go ahead and head over to at Pod on Instagram and check out the post for this episode. Moving back westward, we are headed to India to celebrate the Festival of Love, Holi. Holi is an ancient festival of India that was originally known as Holika. Its origin is either thought to be widespread with many Aryan cultures originally celebrating it, or to come from early religious texts. No matter what though, Holi has existed and endured through thousands of years, with the meaning of the festival changing a few times over those years. Holi is celebrated at the end of winter, on the last full day of the Hindu Luni solar calendar, and marks the beginning of spring. In the 17th century, Holi was a festival that celebrated agriculture and fertile land, a time to enjoy the bright colors of spring and say farewell to winter. To many, Hindus' Holi is an occasion to reset and renew ruptured relationships and conflict and rid oneself of accumulated emotional impurities. Celebrations begin the night before with bonfires and gatherings to sing and dance. The next day is the actual day of Holi, and children and other young people spray colored powders called galal at each other, laughing and celebrating all the while. Adults also take part in the fun, smearing dried powder on each other's faces and even bombarding visitors with powder in the face before serving them all the delicacies of the holiday. The play of colors is the main event of Holi, and it's probably something you've dreamt of participating in. I know I have. Each color, though, has a specific meaning or association. Blue is calm and serenity, as well as for Lord Krishna, a manifestation of Vishnu. Red is for love, passion, and fertility, and all throughout Indian culture, red is associated with marriage for women. Green is the color of nature and happiness, or Prince Rama, another manifestation of Vishnu. Orange is for courage and sacrifice, the color worn by many of the men of God throughout India, which represents the sacral chakra, which is the body's energy center. Yellow is for happiness and represents merchant, along with the weaving of the sun into a garment for Lord Vishnu. Pink is the color of youth and good health. Purple is the color of supreme peace and wisdom and is the color of the crown chakra, the bridge to the cosmos. Shops and offices are closed for the day and the bright colors fill the air. Couples take a particular joy from the process, with legendary Lord Krishna being said to have started the trend. Krishna applied color to Radha to make her one like him and locations associated with the two have unmatched celebrations. There's also the tradition for adults to consume the experience-enhancing bang, an edible mixture from the buds, leaves, and flowers of a female cannabis plant. Many otherwise sober people partake in bang during Holi to really give themselves away to the celebration. But this day isn't about intoxication, so you better not go too crazy. You have to be sober by evening because this is the time for family and friends to come together and to celebrate with sweets and festive greetings. Holi is meant to encourage the feeling of brotherhood in society and aid in enemies turning into friends. People of all communities and religious backgrounds, both inside and outside of India, celebrate Holi to help strengthen the power of this tradition. Remember how I said Asia is massive? Well, we're not done here yet, and I have left a lot out of this area. 
Maybe we need to do a specifically Asian spring holiday episode, perhaps in 2024. But we're going to begin rounding out here with our second to last Asian tradition, which takes place in both Japan and Korea and in lots of other places, I guess. I am, of course, discussing the Japanese tradition of the Cherry Blossom Festival. These celebrations consist of holding parties under the cherry blossoms as they bloom. Cherry blossom festivals are unique because their timing all depends on when the trees blossom, and the amount of time that the trees are bloomed is quite short. This means that the country has its eyes on the trees, ready to jump into action and celebrate as soon as the flowers begin to blossom. Like seriously, Japanese news stations monitor and report on the cherry blossom front as part of the cherry blossom forecast. Cherry blossom trees, or sakura, are a very significant part of Japanese culture. Though the majority of Japanese citizens don't identify with an organized religion, historically the two most common religions are Shinto and Buddhism. These two religions have greatly influenced the culture of Japan, and sakura is significant within both of them. In Shinto, sakura are thought to house kami, or sacred spirits or forces, while in Buddhist doctrine, the ephemeral nature of the blooms mirrors the great importance of impermanence. The cherry blossom festivals are called Tanami and may have begun as early as the Nara period from 710 to 794 CE. Modern Hanami center around Sakura, but originally those who celebrated did so under plum trees. Hanami revolving around admiring plum blossoms still happens, but these are smaller and less widespread celebrations. Cherry blossom festivals are the most common in Japan, but the celebration has spread far beyond the island nation. Many countries and cities around the world have been gifted Sakura by Japan so that they could create their own versions of the Hanami festivities. Here in the United States, we have notable festivals in Washington, D.C. and Macon, Georgia. In Japan, you can see the blooms at different times depending on your location. The farther north, the later they blossom. There are many large hanami throughout Japan offering widely different backdrops. Hirosaki Park is the home of Hirosaki Castle and is a later celebration of the season. The Shinjuku Goyen National Garden is a 144-acre national park home to 1,500 cherry blossom trees. And the Meguro River, which covers 5 miles in Tokyo, has over a half mile of bank with sakura trees on either side. Here, there are also museums and restaurants near the trees to allow people to take part in the party aspects of the tradition. Not everyone who sees the blooming of the trees celebrates their presence, though. In Korea, the arrival of spring and the blooming of the sakura is still monitored on television and there are still hanami celebrations throughout the country, but at the same time it reminds the people of the Korean-Japanese War. The Japanese invaded Korea in 1910, and an act of imperialism attempted to wipe out Korean culture, language, and history and they planted cherry blossom trees to represent their superiority. They planted them in front of symbolic locations of Korean power, such as the palace where the king used to live and the National Assembly Building for South Korea's Congress. Many Korean cherry blossom festivals commemorate the complicated and significant truth of these flowers, hoping to highlight their presence as more than just beautiful. Alright, our final tradition from Asia is going to be a big one, and it's also happening right now, and that's Ramadan. I can't really point to one specific area or country that Ramadan is from, so because the highest population of Muslim people live in Asia, she's going with the Asian ones. Ramadan takes place in the ninth month of the Muslim calendar and is the holy month of fasting. Its beginning and its end are marked with the presence of the crescent moon, which means that it's a 29 or 30 day period. The Muslim calendar is shorter than the Gregorian calendar, which is what the common 12 month calendar containing January, February, the thing that you know is called. But because the Muslim calendar is shorter than the Gregorian calendar, Ramadan begins 10 to 12 days earlier each year, and over the course of 33 years, there will be a Ramadan that occurs within each season. But we are still calling it a spring holiday. Don't come for me when I educate you on facts of how what I say is possibly in a gray area, or do, I guess, but just make your own podcast and do it. So Ramadan, the spring holiday, 
commemorates the fact that Islamic tradition states that it was during Ramadan, on the night of power, that God revealed the Quran to the Prophet Muhammad. For Muslims, Ramadan is a period of introspection, communal prayer in the mosque, and the reading of the Quran. God will forgive the sins of those who observe the holy month with fasting, prayer, and faithful intention. But that's not to say that this is a period that's focused on sin and forgiveness of it. Ramadan is more focused on the practice of psalm or self-restraint, one of the five pillars of Islam. Most commonly, people think of psalm as the obligation to fast during Ramadan, but it's actually more broadly done as the obligation to refrain from food, drink, smoking, sexual activity, and all forms of immoral behavior, including impure or unkind thoughts from dawn to dusk every day. After their sunset prayers, Muslims gather in their homes or mosques to break their fast with a meal called iftar that is shared between friends and extended families. Iftar usually begins with dates, a custom of the Prophet Muhammad, or with apricot, along with water or sweetened milk. Night prayers called tarawih take place at the mosque, and over the month of Ramadan, the entire Quran may be recited in these prayers. To accommodate the increase in worship and decrease in food, some Muslim-majority countries have work hours adjusted during the day or even reduced. The Quran states that eating and drinking are permissible only until, quote, the white thread of light becomes distinguishable from the dark thread of night at dawn, end quote. So Muslims in some communities ring bells or pound drums before the sun rises to remind others that it's time for the before-dawn meal, called the suhar. If you end up breaking your fast and invalidating your psalm, you can make up a lost day of fasting with another. You can also substitute days after Ramadan ends if you are ill or required to travel. Volunteering and feeding the poor can also be substituting for fasting if needed. Able-bodied adults and older children are expected to fast during the daylight hours from dawn to dusk. Pregnant or nursing women, children, elderly people, those suffering from mental illness, or experiencing other ailments are exempt from the requirement of fasting. The end of the Ramadan fast is celebrated as Eid al-Fitr, or the Feast of Fast-Breaking, which is one of two major religious holidays on the Muslim calendar. Eid is a very special occasion in some communities, where children wear new clothes, women dress in white, special pastries are baked, gifts are exchanged, the graves of relatives are visited, and people gather for family meals and to pray in mosques. Think about the kind of party that you would have after you've abstained from basically every indulgence in your life for the last 30 days. These people are having the time of their lives, and they're celebrating with their friends and their family while they're doing so. What sounds better? Whoa. Well, everyone, that's it. That's Asia. Let's go ahead and take a quick break before we head just a little bit east and on to the rest of the world. Okay. So, we finished up in Asia, and within that, we covered, well, a lot. Now we're going to set our sights on Africa. Remember the Jewish people in Passover? Let's see what they left behind in Egypt. In the spring, Egyptian people of all faiths and backgrounds come together to celebrate Sham el-Nasim, meaning the smell of the breeze. This national holiday has roots in pharaonic traditions, and is similar to an Iranian festival called Nehruz, which also symbolizes the beginning of spring and renewal. Sham el-Nesim is one day after Coptic Easter, and will be celebrated this year on April 17th. The celebration finds its origin in around 2700 BCE, when it was known as Shamu. In this springtime festival, ancient Egyptians would offer salted fish and other foods to their gods. This day would usually coincide with the spring equinox, and the spring was significant for the planting of crops and welcoming of growth. As Christianity was introduced, the celebration became associated with Coptic Easter, and was annually held on the day after Easter Sunday. Just like other celebrations we've discussed, Sham el-Nesim is only one day, but is prepared for and planned well in advance. Family and friends gather in gardens and parks and along the banks of the Nile. Fairgrounds pop up around the country for the celebration and offer rides and slides to entertain children. Another tradition is painting and decorating hard-boiled eggs. 
Families will boil the eggs the night before and spend the day covering them in the designs. The eggs symbolize rebirth and renewal, and some people write wishes on the eggs and then hang them on trees or inside of their homes in hopes that the wishes will come true. In the spring in Morocco, something magical happens every year. In the tiny town of Kalat Mguna, situated in the Dades Valley, everything is bursting into bloom with thousands of soft pink, fragrant roses. The valley is also called the Valley of the Roses, but that would have given it away. From April to May, these fields of centifoila or Damascene roses fill the air with their sweet scent and are celebrated for their beauty and plenty. Around 20,000 people gather in this small town to soak up the joy and excitement of the Valley of the Roses festival. The festival begins with thousands of roses being blanketed throughout the streets and people sprinkling each other with rose water and petals. Singing and dancing in the streets with traditional dances like the sword dance or the bee dance also take place. An unmarried woman is elected Miss of the Roses for the day and will ride through town on a flowered float, accompanied by music and songs in a whole parade. Oral legend says that the Damascene rose was brought to Morocco in the 10th century when a group of pilgrims returning from Mecca were impressed by its beauty and scent. They brought a few of the roses back and planted them in the region of Kalat Maguna. While the flowers are in bloom, women are busy at dawn each day picking the precious petals. Nearly a thousand tons will be harvested to be distilled. It takes around 3,000 rose petals to make just one liter of rose water through the distillation process. But overall, the Festival of the Valley of the Roses is a time for folk dancing, singing, celebrating, and feasting. For people to celebrate this flower and welcome its springtime gifts. So let's jump far across the Atlantic Ocean and see what's happening in South America. We first need to discuss a few different things though while we're here. One of those is this. The Earth has an equator. Crazy, right? Well, above and below that equator are the northern and southern hemispheres. Those two hemispheres experience seasons on an opposite cycle, meaning that even though it's December 25th all over the world, Christmas for Americans and Europeans is cold, and in Australia it's the middle of summer. The closer you are to the equator, though, the less the seasons matter. It's just going to be generally pretty hot. I mentioned that briefly at the top of the episode, but you're going to need to remember it now, so let's make sure that it's clear. As crystal. So we're here in South America. Specifically, let's begin with Ecuador. Here, the festival of the spring equinox has ancient ties to pre-Columbian cultures that lived in the Andes of Ecuador long before the arrival of the Inca. Modern-day Ecuadorian Quiche continued the tradition, calling the celebration Mushuknina and considering it the start of the Andean New Year. Groups gather at important ceremonial sites throughout Ecuador on or near March 21st, whatever day the spring equinox falls on. Like I mentioned before, being closer to the equator means that seasons don't differ that much. So farming in Ecuador doesn't follow a strict seasonal schedule, but the Mushuknina festival still celebrates the sowing of seeds and therefore includes an offering of foods. Families bring their foods for a large display, sometimes built in the shape of an Andean cross or even in the shape of a circle, with a sacred fire placed in the center. Mushuknina is Kicha for new fire, and in Andean cosmology, fire makes up one of the corners of the Andean cross. Fire cleanses and makes things new. During the celebration, a shaman cleanses individuals and families in the smoke of the new fire, preparing them for the new year. Once the formal ceremony has ended, there is a large festival. Dance troops perform while wearing costumes, musicians play guitars and Andean pipes, and crowds eat traditional dishes. In south neighboring Peru, the Trujillo Spring Festival takes place between the end of September and the beginning of October each year. Taking place in the Peruvian city of Trujillo, nicknamed the City of Everlasting Spring, this festival is one of the largest in the country and attracts visitors from all around the world. The main attraction of the event is the Corsican Parade involving beauty queens from across the continent, but there are also competitions that take place. One of the competitions is the Peruvian Peso Contest and the Marinera Competition. 
The Peruvian Peso is a breed of light saddle horse that is best known for its smooth ride and was created in Peru by breeding horses from Spain and North Africa. The marinera is a partner dance that uses handkerchiefs as props and occasionally with one of the dance partners atop a Peruvian peso. Alright, so we're going back across the Atlantic to Europe and I have to cover Easter. I've sidestepped it for this long, but I said that I would explain everything to you as if you had never heard of it and that's a promise that I plan to keep. So, Easter is the principal festival of the Christian church that celebrates the resurrection of Jesus Christ on the third day after his crucifixion. The earliest recorded observance of an Easter celebration comes from the 2nd century, around 100 years after the collection and creation of the New Testament that chronicles Jesus Christ's death. The English word Easter is likely from the German word Ostern. These words both likely find their origin from the Christian designation of Easter week as in albus, or in the dark, a Latin phrase that was understood as the plural of alba, or dawn, and became eostarum in Old High German, the precursor of the German and English terms today. The Latin and Greek pascha, meaning Passover, provides the root for Pax, the French word for Easter. Specifying a date for the observation and celebration of the resurrection of Jesus was a major controversy in early Christianity and is where Eastern and Western differences can be distinguished. In the East and Asia Minor, Christians observed the day of the crucifixion on the same day that Jews celebrated the Passover offering, on the 14th day of the first full moon of the spring, or the 14th of Nisan. The resurrection was then observed two days later, on the 16th of Nisan, regardless of the day of the week. In the West, the resurrection was celebrated on the first day of the week, Sunday, and consequently, Easter was always celebrated on the first Sunday after the 14th of Nisan. Over time, churches opted for a Sunday celebration, and finally in 325 it was decreed that Easter should be observed on the first Sunday following the first full moon after the spring equinox. All of that is to say that Easter could fall on any Sunday between March 22nd and April 25th. Eastern Orthodox churches use a slightly different calculation based on the Julian rather than the Gregorian calendar. And since the Julian is usually 13 days behind the Gregorian, Orthodox or Coptic Easter occurs later than it does for Protestants and Catholics. Furthermore, Orthodox tradition prohibits Easter from being celebrated before or during Passover. In the 20th century, there were a few different attempts to arrive at a fixed date for Easter for all Christians, but none were successful. Renewed interest in a fixed date also arose in the early 2000s with discussions involving Eastern Orthodox, Syriac Orthodox, Coptic, Anglican, and Catholic churches but a formal agreement on a date could not be reached. But Easter is the last hurrah of a larger, longer celebration, the period of Lent. Lent is a period of 40 days excluding Sundays before Easter in which acts of penance and fasting are typically observed. The immediate week before Easter is Holy Week, which includes Maundy Thursday to commemorate Jesus' Last Supper with his disciples, Good Friday, the day of the crucifixion, and Holy Saturday, the transition between crucifixion and resurrection. The prominence of baptism at Easter goes back to early Christianity, probably around the 4th century, when baptism was only administered once a year, at Easter. All Christian peoples and denominations have their own special emphases and traditions for Easter. The Easter sunrise service, for example, is a distinctively North American Protestant observance. The practice may derive from the gospel narrative of the resurrection, which states that Mary Magdalene went to the tomb while it was still dark, or as dawn was breaking. So, we're in Europe, and people are celebrating Easter, and they have all different types of their own customs. The custom of the Easter lamb comes from both the use of the lamb as a metaphor for Jesus throughout the Bible, and the lamb's role as a sacrificial animal in ancient Israel. Since the 12th century, the Lenten fast has ended on Easter with meals including eggs, ham, cheeses, bread, and sweets. For many Russian, Slovenian, and Polish Catholics, this meal includes the addition of a butter lamb which is exactly what it sounds like, a lamb shaped out of butter entirely by hand or by using a mold. The lambs are also sold at delis and Polish markets, and the eyes are often made with peppercorns or dried cloves. 
They also have this cute little white banner with a red cross on a toothpick that gets placed into its back. These things are adorable. I also mentioned earlier that eggs are a symbol of this season, and that's of course because eggs are a symbol of birth and fertility, along with being one of the items that's a part of that Linden fast. In Bosnia and Herzegovina, though, eggs are the star of the springtime festivities. At the Festival of Scrambled Eggs, or Cumbriata, on the first day of spring, friends and visitors gather in a park along the Bosnia River at the crack of dawn to prepare and share scrambled eggs. The festival has a literary and art competition with students from around the country, and more than 1,500 eggs are scrambled in giant pots to be shared by the crowds. Farther north in the Netherlands, the Dutch Flower Parades attracts millions of people from all over the world. Occurring in April each year, these impressive floats travel from the beaches all the way to the cities. The origins of this event come from 1947, just after World War II and three years before the Kuchenhof Flower Garden opened. When the war ended and the need for socializing and parties was greater, local groups would begin organizing parades. These processions originally consisted of a couple of flower garlands and flower flingers, as well as decorated trucks and handcarts. Willem Mormonhoven, an amaryllis grower, was the creator of the first adult float in the shape of a whale. And every year since, the parade has attracted more and more people. By the early 1950s, the numbers were already well into the 500,000s. Now this parade and this tradition is a national icon of the Netherlands and is truly a sight to see, guys. I have some photos of this up for the week. I know I keep referencing the Instagram post, but it's because it helps you, this stuff really come alive. Check it out. On the Greek island of Corfu, Holy Saturday celebrations are a smash. Literally. The day before they celebrate Orthodox Easter, the people of the island are busy taking part in the old custom of bow tide, where large clay jars are filled with water and then thrown from balconies and windows into the center of town, smashing into pieces on the street below while thousands of excited people gather to watch. Visitors come from all across Greece and abroad to watch the thunderous event. The fearless spectators stand close to the crash sites and are often hit with the spray of water and shards of clay, and organizers say that there's never been anyone seriously injured. The tradition is said to ward off bad spirits, and spectators take home pieces of the smashed pottery as good luck charms. The exact origin of the custom is unclear. One thought is that it originated with the Venetians who ruled the island from the 14th to the 18th centuries. To mark the new year, the Venetians would throw out old belongings to make room for new ones. The Greeks adopted the custom, added the clay pots, and moved it to Easter. On another island in Europe, we have another wildly fun tradition. It's England's Cooper's Hill Cheese Rolling and Wake. Oh, guys, this one is my favorite. Taking place annually on the spring bank holiday in the United Kingdom, this cheesy competition is unlike anything else we've discussed. Near Gloucester, England on Cooper's Hill, participants race down the 200-yard long hill chasing a 7-9 to pound round of double Gloucester cheese. Traditionally, the competition was held by and for people who lived in the local village of Brockworth, but now people from all over the world come to participate. The format is simple. From the top of the hill, the cheese wheel is sent rolling down the hill. Competitors then start racing down the hill after the cheese. The first person over the finish line at the bottom of the hill wins the cheese. The objective of the race is to be the first to cross the finish line or to catch the cheese. But the dairy speed demon has a one second head start and can reach speeds of up to 70 miles per hour. Multiple races and heats are done throughout the day and in 2013, a foam replica replaced the cheese for safety reasons. The winners still got real cheese though. There are two possible origins for the competition, which is first documented in 1826 and was then thought to be around 600 years old. The first origin is that it may have evolved from a requirement for maintaining the grazing rights on the common. The second are that there may be pagan origins for the custom of rolling objects down a hill. It is thought that bundles of burning brushwood were rolled down the hill to represent the birth of the new year after winter. Connected with this is the traditional scattering of buns, biscuits, and sweets by the master of ceremonies before the race at the top of the hill. 
This is said to be a fertility rite to encourage the fruits of the harvest. All right, so one last stop before we bring it back to the United States, and we're headed for Australia. We'll talk rabbits and eggs in a moment, but Australia has something completely their own, the Easter bilby. Bilbies are native Australian marsupials, and they're endangered. To raise money and increase awareness for conservation efforts, bilby-shaped chocolates and related merchandise are sold all over Australia as an alternative to Easter bunnies. The first documented use of the Easter bilby concept came in March of 1968, when a nine-year-old girl named Rosemary Dusting wrote a story called Billy the Aussie Easter Bilby, which she publishes a book 11 years later. The story helped to create public interest in saving the bilby. In 1991, Nicholas Newland from the Foundation for Rabbit-Free Australia also developed the idea of the Easter bilby. This was done to raise awareness about the environmental damage that feral rabbits can cause and to replace the Easter bunny with an example of truly native Australian wildlife. Over time, chocolate bilbies have experienced a decrease in public interest and many large companies no longer make them. All right, the time has come. We've landed in the United States and commercialism is running rampant. So let's discuss those fun commercial symbolisms for the holidays. Of course, I am by no means saying that the use of eggs or the bunny or chicks or flowers is an exclusively American idea or is even exclusive to us in general. I'm just saying that it's what we do here, so it feels easiest to discuss it here. So back in the days of the early Christian church, people were prohibited from eating eggs during the Holy Week, but that didn't mean that chickens stopped laying them. The fact that there were all these extra eggs laying around was one thing, but the detail that they had been laid during Holy Week made them holy eggs, and that meant that they were to be cherished and even decorated. The egg itself became a symbol for the resurrection. Just as Jesus rose from the tomb, the egg symbolizes new life emerging from the eggshell. Easter egg hunts are not American in origin, but are most popular here in the United States. It's thought that Protestant reformer Martin Luther originated the practice in the 17th century, where he and other men would hide eggs for the women and children to find, a nod to the story of women being the first to discover Jesus' empty tomb. The association of a rabbit or bunny with Easter began in Protestant areas of Europe during the 17th century, but wasn't widely common until the 18th century. The Easter bunny is said to lay the eggs as well as decorate and hide them. And here in the United States, it's also common for the Easter Bunny to leave children's baskets with toys and candies on Easter morning. In a way, this is a manifestation of the Protestant rejection of Catholic Easter customs. One traditional and popular event in the U.S. for Easter is the White House Easter Egg Roll. In the 1870s, Capitol Hill had become a popular spot for children to roll eggs and themselves down the hill on Easter Monday. The event and location gradually grew more and more popular and the impact on the grounds became noticeable. In 1876, Congress passed a law forbidding the Capitol grounds from being used as a children's playground, and the tradition was squashed. In 1878, President Rutherford B. Hayes issued an order that if any children wished to come to the White House to roll their Easter eggs, they could do so. The tradition has carried on since and has grown into a major event that requires a lottery to attend. The planning and preparation for the White House Easter egg roll is usually done by the First Lady, and over time they have left their mark on the event in different ways. First Lady Lou Hoover roped off part of the South Lawn for folk dancing, Lady Pat Nixon introduced the traditional egg roll races, and First Lady Nancy Reagan introduced the custom of each participant leaving the event with a wooden Easter egg, complete with the signature of the President and the First Lady. Throughout all the places that we've talked about today and all of the traditions, a few things and a few themes stand out to me. Number one is cleaning. (laughs) It seems that almost every culture has some form of spring cleaning, some way that they mark the influx of spring, the coming of the new season, with the need to throw out old junk. The world, the universe wants us to clean out our shit. 
get rid of it. We don't need it. Also, the other thing that really stands out to me is just joy in general and just that excitement of camaraderie and that excitement of being together and being with people that you love and celebrating what it's like to be together, celebrating togetherness. There's no better way to say it. Togetherness. Come together with your loved ones and celebrate what it's like to be in their presence, appreciate them, be grateful for what you have. I know I am extremely grateful for what I have. Next week, I have a little bit of a surprise for you, a little bit of a celebration for our 10th episode. I cannot believe we are about to hit 10 episodes. This has been number nine. It has been so fine. Number nine. Um, <laughs> but like I said, I have a surprise for y'all next week. So be sure to tune in and check out what I've got cooking up for you. In the meantime, if you are celebrating anything, if you're celebrating a birthday, if you're celebrating one of the holidays that we discussed, if you are just kicking it on your couch right now and you will be for the foreseeable future, I love you. I hope that you have a great week. I hope that you do something for yourself. I hope that you feel loved and appreciated because I love you and I appreciate you. I will see y'all so, so soon. I hope you'll join me next week in the pursuit to know a little bit about everything. Please like, share, comment, um, follow the pod on Spotify, send it to a friend, but most of all, stay safe out there. Until next time, guys. Thanks.